Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. This is my weekly platform with the Western Standard out there on the Cowboy Network and RFD TV and all those good spots. We broadcast live for those who are following the live version. Hey, take advantage of that comment, comment scroll there. I see Brandon already jumping into the mix talking about things uh, on the upcoming show. I like hearing the feedback. I like uh, having that communication. It lets me know you're out there. Just remember to keep things civil. Of course, there's Stuart saying good day, good day to Stuart. And uh, yes, I've got a good show ahead today with a lot of rants, of course, and news items and uh, a good guest coming up. So I've got Michael Binion. Uh, people may be familiar with him. He's the head of Quest Air Energy, and he founded the Modern Miracle Network. I know it sounds almost like an evangelical sort of thing, but actually, no, it's, it's an energy uh, activism group, I guess you could say, in a sense. And we want to talk about subsidies in oil are they really subsidized are we really you know gil bull made all that virtue signaling we're going to cut the oil subsidies <coughs> pardon me uh, but where are these subsidies what are these subsidies so mr binion will certainly have some answers for us um as well of course we'll be checking in with dave with the news and and doing a whole other number of other things i'm going to remind a couple times to this show though uh, meta has started they, they are blocking links to new sites online and uh, you won't be able to see Western Standard stories and things like that. You still see the video links and things such as that. But just a time to remind you, take out a membership. Plus, follow us on Twitter. It's uh, WS Online News. And you'll see those stories as they pop up. Or, of course, go directly to WesternStandard.News to get these stories. Because you're not going to see them on Facebook, thanks to Trudeau's latest idiocy. And I'll rant more on that a little bit later. But I just want to remind people a couple times. Because they're forgetting where they uh, first found our news, perhaps, and need to be reminded. So... Back to what Brandon said. Uh, he said it's getting bad out there, too many immigrants. Okay, well, I, I don't think there's too many, but I think we're, uh, well, there, there's too many for what we have to sustain the level of immigration. And, and that's that's the problem. So I'm going to start talking about that because I'm pretty, uh, very concerned about what's going on. So are you ready to be forced to take strangers into your home? I know that sounds unbelievable, but then no, most of us never would have believed the government would lock the country down for years over a virus either, would they? Canada's marching towards a national catastrophe as the government's refusing to even consider reducing the immigration numbers while our housing construction lags. This isn't a matter of my opinion. This is just simple math. The government plans to bring in nearly 1.5 million immigrants into Canada in the next three years, while we're expected to construct about 700,000 new housing units over that period. So where on earth does the government think we're going to put all these new Canadians? I mean, Canada's a, a winter country. It's, it's not as if we could set up massive temp camps to hold the immigrants for a few years while we figure out what to do with them. People need shelter with solid walls and heat for six months of the year. So what's the plan? Are we going to house the immigrants in community halls and gymnasiums? That won't be sustainable for terribly long. I mean, again, the immigrants aren't necessarily coming in destitute. Many have funds, and they're going to be finding homes in the existing, existing market. But that, of course, will push rents higher and purchase prices for homes higher. And uh, Canada's already experiencing a housing affordability crisis. Then there's the health care shortage. Everybody's already having a hard time finding a family doctor. The lineups for specialty treatments are, uh, you know, people are suffering. They're long. Well, how is bringing millions of new Canadians in going to impact the health care availability and services in years to come. Now, what it's going to lead to, unfortunately, is tensions between current Canadians and new immigrants as citizens find themselves pushed into possibly homelessness by the surge in immigration. And that's not fair to the immigrants who are just simply seeking a new life or a home. 
But let's not pretend that this isn't going to happen. The ire, of course, should be directed at the legislators who refuse to back down on the ridiculous immigration targets. So why is the government so hung up on bringing in millions of people when we clearly don't have the infrastructure and services to handle them? Well, the Trudeau government's created a budgetary pyramid scheme or even a Ponzi scheme. You see, with the massive increases in deficit spending, the government needs to try and pump the economy through your immigration or it's going to crash. It's an artificial way to buy prosperity. But like any pyramid scheme, eventually the bottom becomes too wide. You can't keep widening it and it won't sustain it and the structure is going to collapse. I think most of these top decision makers are hoping and assuming they'll have retreated to their retirement destinations before it all falls apart. It's pretty cold comfort for us commoners, however. The push, though, when I'm getting back to what I asked at the start with, to force citizens to rent out rooms in their homes, it will start, and it's going to start as a soft sell. In fact, it's already begun. In Nova Scotia, their housing minister pointed out that there's 130,000 vacant bedrooms across that province that could be rented out to ease the housing crisis. Well, that's quite a suggestion. It's troublesome on a couple of fronts. I mean, for one, how does he know how many vacant bedrooms the province has? Well, remember all those questions that uh, seemed so intrusive on the census form? And they asked you about how many bathrooms you had and such? Well, now you see the sort of thing that information gets used to. You can also see why, not just why they wanted to know, but why you probably shouldn't have cooperated with the census. The other issue is we have a senior government official looking at those as for now, spare rooms, with an eye to compelling people to rent them out. We know the progression of government when they do these things. The next step is going to be shaming people. People with large houses or empty nesters with spare bedrooms are going to be called selfish if they don't rent those roots out, rent those rooms out. The politics of envy will come into play, and the government's going to demand homeowners do their fair share, they love that term, in easing the crisis. And, of course, they will imply that holdouts are racist, though, again, immigrants come in all colors, as do the existing homeowners and, and people residing in Canada. It isn't a matter of racism, it's a matter of statistics and ability. When the social shaming, though, doesn't work, the government will use its favorite tool to compel people to do things. They'll move on to taxes. In the UK, there's already what they call an empty bedroom tax, and Canadians on social media are already hinting that that might be a good idea here. Let's just call it what it is, though. It's a fine for those daring not to help the government with the immigration catastrophe it has created. So even with the social ostracization and the extratization, though there's still people aren't going to comply. If they wanted to rent their spare rooms to strangers, they already would have. So then as tensions escalate across the nation due to growing homelessness, clashes between immigrants and citizens, the government will use its trump card. This will sound familiar. They'll declare a national emergency. Then they can suspend civil rights and people can be compelled to open their doors through the threat and seizure of things like their bank accounts or possibly even their property itself. It'll be for the public good, though, of course, right? That's why. Does this all sound far-fetched? Well, remember what happened when we were told just two weeks to flatten the curve? Authoritarians in power in Canada are capable of anything, and they've already proven that. We don't need to halt all immigration. That would be bad for the nation. We need to lower the numbers, though, to match the housing ability and infrastructure. Otherwise, we are on a collision course with a catastrophe. Well, that's kind of what's got me going today. Uh, Let's see, you know, stone leasing, did, uh, did you know Israel, Israel doesn't accept immigrants, but they shame other, uh, any other country that doesn't? Uh, that's not true, Stoneley. In fact, uh, Israel takes it a lot, though they do give a, a great preference uh, to people who were uh, part of the Jewish uh, diaspora. But that's a separate discussion altogether. No sense injecting it into this. Uh, let's see, uh, you know, again, um, one million new Canadians each year from flexing, saying, you know, uh, helps uh, 
with Justin's inflation. Yes, I mean, it's just supply and demand, but supply and demand's lost on a lot in the left when it comes to any of these discussions. But all right, let's check in and see what else is happening out there and bring in Dave Naylor, our news editor, and see what other news order items are topping the scroll today. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Good. You got me worried about my empty bedrooms now, Corey. I'm going to have to uh, have to rent them out, I guess. It may come to it, uh, you know, but hey, it's for the public good. It is. It is. So, you know, uh, viewers know, Corey, that you tried to get into the bee business. And I think you'll agree it wasn't a great success. Your bees have basically all run away and, and you're not having, uh, you know, you're not making floods of honey as you had hoped. So I understand you're now you're you're now trying a new business, and you're going to try and set up the Pritis Cartel, and you're going to manufacture drugs because they just grow freely on your property, Corey. Like look at the it's, photo. I mean that is a beautiful specimen of a, a marijuana plant growing in your backyard. It most certainly is. I mean, we're economically diversifying. Uh, yeah, I shared that picture. Uh, that thing did sprout up out of the blue in the backyard. I'm glad it's legal these days because I'm sure no uh, enforcement agent would ever believe me if I made that excuse. We have a, a couple of family suspects we think may have uh, played uh, the Johnny Appleseed with the, the weed in, our, in the backyard. But, uh, boy, that, that, that plant sure is doing well. And I can't grow anything else to save my life. Well, whenever it's uh, whenever it's matured, I'm sure uh, Duke the Wonder Dog will have a fun time uh, uh, chewing on the leaves. Yeah, I hope the, the dogs seem to have ignored it so far, thankfully, and they're they're already uh, screwy enough. But uh, we'll see what happens. Good. Well, I wish you luck uh, in your new cartel. Uh, news on the website already a busy morning as always, Corey. Uh, you remember all the the fallout from Chinese uh, uh, interference in the election and and Chinese. Uh, police stations being set up in Toronto and Vancouver. But it turns out since the start of the year, one quarter of uh, the Chinese diplomats in Toronto have, uh, have quietly left the country. Uh, you know, things that make you go, hmm. Uh, dramatic scenes in Hawaii today, Corey, where uh, wildfires are running amok over uh, Maui. Uh, you don't think of uh, the Hawaiian Islands being a tinderbox, but uh, Apparently Maui is, and uh, the Coast Guard is having to rescue people because uh, the, the flames have uh, forced them into the ocean. So there's some dramatic uh, video for you to uh, to look at there. Uh, we had a tragedy in downtown Calgary this morning, Corey, when a woman was killed uh, uh, by the LRT station uh, crossing at uh, Center Street. Uh, young Jonathan Bradley was uh, sent to the scene, and uh, his report on... Uh, uh, what happened or, and what the police are doing about it uh, is there downtown Calgary. Uh, the LRT is going to be shut for uh, several hours uh, as police investigate. Uh, the Trans-Canada Pipeline, it looks like the feds are trying to uh, sell some of it to uh, the local First Nations along the route. They're offering them uh, basically uh, free money or risk-free money if they wanted to, uh, to uh, try and invest. And we've got uh, Dr. Barry Cooper, uh, University of Calgary uh, wizard, uh, uh, pitching in his thoughts on the, uh, uh, the lawsuit last week, which uh, ruled that Deanna's, Deanna Hinshaw's uh, public health orders, emergency orders, uh, were invalid. So that's uh, an interesting read from uh, Dr. Cooper. And just to come, Corey, uh, we've got another sort of story on, uh, you know, mind-numbingly head-shaking little government waste. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up a goose farm on Hudson's Bay. A goose farm. I mean, you go put a fence around uh, Princess Island Park in Calgary and get uh, uh, you know thousands of geese trapped there. It uh, 
It just boggles the mind. But uh, even I'm looking forward to reading that story, Corey. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I had a look at that, and uh, they, they never seem to cease to find ways to, to spend our money on crazy ventures. No, they're very, very good at it. All right. Well, thanks for the update, Dave. I'll, I'll let you get back uh, to curating more of that news. And uh, yeah, you know, if, if that plant blossoms and, and continues as it does, perhaps I'll bring a bunch by the office for everybody to uh, sample quality down the road. Well, we can all go out and uh, do it at your place and uh, stay in your Airbnb. <laughs> There you go. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Corey. Talk to you later. So uh, as you can see, guys, again, as always, lots of news stories. We've got reporters all over the country. We've got columnists all over. And it is it has just gotten a great deal harder for some people to find us. There's a lot of confusion about how that worked, what it was about with uh, Meta, you know, now Facebook and Instagram blocking news content on their site. People saying, who cares? I didn't want to read my stuff on social media anyways, blah, blah, blah. Okay, they're missing the point. You weren't reading the news on Meta or Google. That, that, that's actually some of the spin that the liberals were wrongly giving it, as if they were carrying a full news product. They were not. All they carried was a link, and it directed traffic to us. It helped you find us and other news outlets. It was a, a funnel. If anything, they were doing us a service. Now, unfortunately, due to the, the failed shakedown of those social media giants through uh, C18, Meta is basically teaching the, the government a lesson and saying, well, we're just not going to share the links. You say we were stealing content from media. Well, we'll just stop stealing it. And now the flat-footed government doesn't know what to do. The problem is it's independent outlets like us that are paying the price for that because we do lose a degree of traffic. That was one of our better areas to reach out to people, get new readers, you know, people who hadn't heard of us, people considering subscribing. So I, I just have to remind you, at least our videos haven't been blocked. And, you know, we're still out there. We still have the website. Get on there, westernstandard.news. You don't need Facebook, of course, to get to us. But uh, we've lost that tool. So make sure, though, subscribe, guys. Get on the email lists. Uh, you know, get so that you can find out what's happening. Follow us on Twitter. It's WS, uh, what do we got there for Twitter? WS Online News. And uh, that way, you know, you can you can catch all of our content and keep our traffic going, uh, despite uh, the, the reduction right now going on because of this, this whole mess that they've made with the C-18. Hopefully they will uh, repeal that, that, that odious bill soon. But in the meantime, get out there. And you know what? Do us a favor, too. You hear that all the time. Share the links. Get out there. Share it. You can't share our link on Facebook, but you can share it on Twitter. You can share it through emails to friends, all sorts of ways. That's how we can keep being independent keep ourselves free of government subsidies. We always have been. We don't take a nickel of tax dollars here at the Western Standard. And that's thanks to you guys who have subscribed and uh, our advertisers, of course. So, okay, with that out of the way, and it kind of segues in a nice way, I want to talk about subsidies. I want to talk about a bit, what I think is a bit of a myth when it comes to subsidies, but perhaps we'll get some more clarity on it. Because recently, uh, Minister Stephen Gilbo has said he's going to end all the subsidies going to the oil and gas industry you know it's they always make it out to sound like canadians have been shoring up the oil and gas industry all this time you know particularly central canadians of course but nobody can exactly explain what those subsidies are so we've got uh, michael binion coming on the show as i said he's, he's the head of quest uh, quest air energy and of course the modern miracle network and, and he's worked on these things in the, in the energy sector for a long time and, and hopefully he can clarify some of these things for us so uh, hi michael thank you very much for joining us today hi Corey. thanks i appreciate you inviting me yeah, so you, you kind of heard in the intro, like where I want to start with this, at least anyways, 
I mean, if I don't care for corporate welfare, I don't like seeing the tax dollars going out to businesses if they aren't viable. But usually you can kind of see it. You can say, well, look, here, here's this many millions went to Bombardier or here's this much went over to this agricultural facility over there. But I can't find these checks that were going to the oil and gas companies. Yeah, well, the, when people mention that to me, I always say, well, you just could you just please tell me where I could apply? Because I would love to get one of them if I could, you know. And, and of course, I don't really mean that because as former head of the Canadian tax or chair of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, I'm completely against this corporate welfare as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm all for getting rid of these subsidies. But um, and, 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 I, and I, I can probably find you a couple of them that, that do exist, but certainly nothing like what they portray. And uh, nothing like getting uh, $16 billion to build a battery factory, for example, where there's direct checks and production subsidies being given directly. So um, I, I think what I what I said about the Stephen Gilbo announcement was it, it's literally trying to kill a dead horse. Like we, we got rid of the subsidies and we're just going to announce over and over again that we're getting rid of the subsidies. And, and great, you're successful every time because you got rid of them years ago, right? I, I think the other thing is that gets missed from that conversation is just the net, the net uh, tax and royalty revenues that the industry is giving into governments, which uh, which as well as well was should when you're making money. But the um, you know that the, the, you know this idea that somehow it's a subsidized industry when in fact it's it's the the industry is the the main net. Uh, provider of foreign exchange to the country, and we're one of the largest providers of uh, of government revenue. Well, well, that's it. I mean, so with these subsidies having vanished, we we didn't see a uh, uh, you know flood of oil companies uh, suddenly going under or, or fleeing the country because because they weren't getting them in the first place. Yeah, and and I can I guess, you know if you want to get into sort of some details, I mean, I'm sure. Well, the the worst example is uh, is is one report that said. Um, you know, the having to send out police or security to uh, the site of a, of a protest, you know, at a pipeline or whatever. Well, that's a subsidy, you know, because uh, the government's having to pay to protect your asset was the was was the line. So there, there's the there's a type of example like where do these subsidies come from. Um, it's it's really by redefining the word. And, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't think that the average person would think that. Um, you know, police protection of, of property would be considered to be a subsidy. Um, and, and by the way, it's not like the police don't protect other people's property too. So it feels like that would be a level playing field. Um, I'm sure people will, I, I've seen a lot of people talk about that the TMX pipeline is an example of the government subsidizing the industry. I mean, I, I personally find that so objectionable because the last thing most, if not all people, but certainly most people in the industry, the last thing we wanted to see was the government take over the management of constructing that pipeline. Um, but, you know, their their own policies chased away the private sector proponent. And uh, I think the government felt they had no choice but to step in because um, there was there was nobody to nobody to nobody to run it. But but that that, you know, unfair to me to call that a subsidy when nobody wanted it. Right. Um, the, the other one, the other one that I think is that, that I would say is that there are growing subsidies and, and of interest, Stephen Gilbo noted that, you know, we continue to support, uh, projects that create, um, indigenous involvement. Um, so there's a, you know, I think we, we can probably all agree that, um, that First Nations poverty is a, is a, is a major social issue in this country and, and the government continues to or even adds to programs that would 
that would help that. Uh, he they also he was announcing additional additional programs to help with decarbonization emissions reductions. So the you know out of out of one side is both he says we're eliminating subsidies for the oil and gas industry that were already eliminated. And then on the other says, oh, by the way, we're going to continue to support or maybe give a bit more support for things like carbon uh, emissions reduction or in, in indigenous involvement in 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 jobs and, and equity in the industry. So um, my, my, my sense was that to cover that they were actually giving out some more money to help indigenous people. And and I'm sure you know this. Maybe not everybody who's listening knows this, but every you know the the oil and gas industry has been by far the best industry for providing jobs to Indigenous people, and 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 also the best at uh, at gender parity uh, in in terms of jobs for women and men. So um, you know you the, our industry get, getting help to do that um, you know, as they're announcing that he wanted to say, oh yeah, well don't forget we're getting rid of those other subsidies. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, it's, it's it gets convoluted, as you said, as you start and how you're going to define what's a subsidy then. Uh, an area that a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with, but I think some of those numbers get pulled out of that with claims of subsidies as well, is, is like the tax deferral for capital investments in the oil sands. Uh, but I mean, I, you, if you go on a real stretch, you can say that's a benefit the government's offering, but I wouldn't call it a subsidy. Yeah, well, I think that's that's what they, they mean. These international reports, there was a report a few years ago that got a lot of play about how many billions of dollars worldwide were given to the industry. But, you know, I, I took time to read that report and it was it, it, it redefined what I think the layman thinks a subsidy is. I mean, I, I would say for for the average person, a subsidy is the government actually writes you a check or the government gives you a, you know, everybody else is paying 40% tax, but you're only, you know, but you're going to get no, you're going to get zero tax for five years. I think the average person thinks those are subsidies. Things like uh, I went and bought uh, some equipment and I was allowed to write it off. Most people don't think that's a subsidy. And by the way, what industry doesn't get to write off its capital investment over time and things like, you know, police protection of your property and uh, the government, the government having to rescue a pipeline that they themselves torpedoed most people wouldn't consider those to be subsidies but but these reports um they consider it subsidies the other the other thing the reports did was you know they they made their own assessment of what royalties should be and if your royalties weren't at what the un said they should be well that was another subsidy and it didn't really take into account that profit margins on oil sands is less than profit margins on natural gas which is less than profit margins on light oil and so it, in Alberta, it makes sense that we, we have different royalties for different types of products. Uh, but that was another thing they called a subsidy. Yeah, they, they start to, to really stretch. Uh, one area, though, that, uh, uh, you know, maybe there's a bit of merit in a sense. I think it was perhaps due to some bad policy historically, a number of things. There, there are a large number of uh, orphaned and abandoned facilities that need reclamation. And yeah. tax dollars have been dedicated towards that. Now, that's not... Uh, the, the thing is, the companies that left that are often gone, so it's not like a subsidy's gone to that company, but there are tax dollars going to a remediation that uh, the, that came from that industry in the first place. Uh, yeah. How would that kind of fit in? Well, I would say, in, in all honesty, there's the one one place where I would say that there was a subsidy, that, and I, and I disagree with it, uh, was during COVID, the Alberta government said, hey, 
the industry is in real trouble. The price of oil is 20 some dollars. I mean, there's, there was that one day where oil actually sold for less than zero. Um, and so, you know, I, I think every company during the height of the COVID crisis, which was also a energy, you know, an energy crisis and an economic crisis, you know, I think there was a sense that I, I know me leading my company, I said, well, I, I, I don't know how I got maybe six to 12 months. And after that, we're bankrupt. So uh, during that time, the government was saying, hey, like like every other industry that you're giving all these supports to the airline industry and others, could we have some support for the oil and gas industry? And what they were what we were mainly asking for was just some liquidity support to make sure that our banks didn't call our lines in the middle of the of the of the of the crisis. What the government gave instead, and this was, I think, more a federal government decision, not a Alberta government request, said, well, we'll give you some money for well reclamation. We think we can justify that. Um, I, uh, that's, that's not really what we needed. Uh, by the time that, by the time the money came through for well reclamation, our liquidity crisis was over. So it, it didn't come in time. It didn't help the problem we were looking for. And in the end, uh, I, I think for, for, for my, and, and I, and I won't, not everybody in the industry is going to agree with me on this point, but, but I, I think that it is bad for our, you know, our reputation as an industry, as responsible, as a responsible industry, responsible companies. Uh, I, I don't think we should take any subsidies to clean up our wells. And to the extent companies go bankrupt, we have a industry funded orphan well program. And I think the industry needs to be responsible to keep it funded. So that that's, that's my, that's my strong view. Not everybody agrees with me, as you can imagine. But so I guess I would say from my perspective, I think there was a subsidy there. It wasn't what we asked. It wasn't what I asked for my company. And it didn't come in time to help me. Yeah. And, and again, it's certainly if you're going to look at the scale of subsidies or what's going on, I mean, it doesn't equate a $15 billion battery plant or or something like that. That that, that subsidy, I'm just saying it, it could fairly be called such, I guess, was still pretty minor in the in the scheme of things. It was one. Yeah, it was one. It was one point five million dollars, I think, relative to the industry size and the economy. It, the industry got less than um, less than you know, proportionately less than a lot, if not most industries got during the COVID crisis. Um, and as I said, it didn't even come, it didn't even come in time to help us with the COVID crisis. Well, with a, a lot of, I mean, the, the issues of the energy sector, it's not a matter of them needing capital or needing subsidies. They just need a government to get out of the darn way. But, but that's something this government doesn't seem to be interested in. I mean, that's the catastrophe with the Trans Mountain. That, that could have been completed, I think, by private dollars if the government had just uh, lightened up on, on regulation. But they would rather, at this point, it looks like getting up to $30 billion and climbing, um, turn it into a compounding mess than uh, admit that maybe some deregulation was in order. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. And I, and I do feel that there's a little bit of a misdirection going on here. I mean, if you want to look, step back and look, I mean, all the way back to the McKenzie Delta pipeline, where uh, private sector was willing to put up uh, billions of dollars, eight billion of those dollars. So that's going to be 20, 30 billion in today's dollars to open up. Uh, like America has opened up, Alaska would have opened up our Canadian North to to oil and gas, uh, all financed by private sector. The Northern Gateway private sector was killed. The Energy East private sector, that was a $16 billion offer. Uh, you know, these are all high paid jobs. They, they're, they're, and they're all private sector funded jobs. And so we have this strange situ LNG plants that have been turned down, all private sector money wanting to create, 
wanting to create jobs in the LNG sector that will reduce global emissions by replacing dirtier fuels internationally. And we're saying no to that. And then instead we use government money to subsidize, you know, forklift jobs at a battery plant. It just makes no sense, right? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, getting to the, you know, as we kind of wrap up, I mean, a lot of it, you could tell that, I mean, Gilbo, whatever he is, isn't stupid. It's a public relations battle going on. He wants yeah. to keep the myth alive that the average taxpayer is actually holding, uh, you know, shoring up the energy sector and, and the energy sector is a net loser for the country. Uh, that's part of why you've named your, your organization Modern Miracle Network. I mean, you know, celebrating the, the benefits that uh, the hydrocarbon industry has brought to us. And I guess it's that back and forth. You know, I appreciate your defending an industry that's done us this much good as we have an ideological government that's trying so hard to mischaracterize it. Yeah, I mean, and, and I don't I, I don't discount for a moment that there are been negative environmental impacts from our industry. The, the, our organization, Modern Miracle Network, is to remind people, but it's also literally had, you know, created the miracle of modern society. You know, and and so let's not let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, we can we can reduce the impacts of our industry with new technology, and we are. So why why give away these benefits that have had been such enormous enormous impacts on life expectancy and infant mortality and education and equality and all the all the and you know leisure time all the things that we just take for granted today let's keep those benefits but 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 work on the impacts and 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 by the way I'm a I'm a big proponent wind solar alternatives we we need all of our energy choices doesn't make any sense at all as a society to put all our energy like put, why would you ever put all, everything in one basket you've seen what happens in germany you 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 can you you know you, you can be at risk you're at risk you put your society at risk doing that um but let's not forget that these other energy uh sources well you know they have enormous impacts and you know i say that uh, wind and solar have had better work on their problems with land you, you know too much land use too much materials use and they better fix those problems too cuz we're going to need those energy sources in the future yeah well and again i mean it, it's unfortunately turned a lot into an either or discussion when it comes to those energy sources and it really shouldn't be i mean they can complement each other absolutely but we need all of our energy sources and we should be apply like we just got to get away from these 20th century ideas that you know, moratoriums and taxes and subsidies are, you know, with big government central planning is going to fix anything. We need to do what United States is doing. Turn your climate, uh, you know, carbon pricing into a, into carrots, more carrots and not so many sticks. Turn carbon into a business opportunity and let the private, unleash the private sector to solve these problems. And I, I think you're going to see dramatic improvements in America as they've rolled out this, this policy that, that turns carbon into a business opportunity with carrots and Canada, as long as we stick with um, centrally planned solutions. And by the way, Stephen Gilbo is a very smart guy. I mean, he's very knowledgeable, but he's, but he's got a point of view and he's got an ideology and he wants to impose his smart solution on all of us. Uh, whereas in America, they've gone and said, well, let's, let's let the market uh, find the best solutions and let the best solutions win as opposed to pick them. Great. Well, I thank you very much for, for filling in some of those blanks because not everybody watches the energy industry necessarily as closer, closely as, as even myself and certainly not as, as yourself. So, uh, you know, good to counter some of those, those uh, I think, incorrect points that have been thrown yep. around out there. So uh, thank you again for coming on and, and for your work and speaking up for that industry, Michael. Okay. Well, thank you, Corey. Appreciate the chance to be here. Great. Thanks. Hope we can talk again soon. Bye-bye.
Okay, so that was Michael Binion, and yes, the, uh, his group is uh, the Modern Miracle Network, and he's with Quest Air Energy. And it, it's just so much, you know, mythology. I mean, those checks aren't going out like that. I, I, you know, part of the problem with that uh, Modern Miracle Network, like I said before, is people mistake it for some sort of an evangelical thing. It has that sort of sound or something like that. The reason he named it such, as he said on there as well, is that it's, a, it's kind of a modern miracle. We wouldn't be sitting as comfortably today, not even close without hydrocarbons i mean look at the evolution of technology and where it's gone every medicine computers it all is completely dependent on energy and i mean it went all the way back to you know hand driven and animal driven machinery was coming about for hundreds and hundreds of years that was evolving even through the middle ages things like that the steam engine changed all that around right the industrial revolution holy cow we can generate energy with something other than people or animals. This is a big turning point, something bigger than a, a water wheel. And then of course, the, the leap into hydrocarbons. I mean, that was a massive leap. It brought us the, the ability for everything from settling the north to, to medicine, to transportation. There is no way without hydrocarbons we would be doing as well as we are around the entire world today. Look at the world today with famine. Even back in the 80s, it was so common. It was so large. It was terrible, terrible looking at what was happening in Northern Africa back then. Things like that. And there's still challenges around the world, absolutely, but not nearly on the scale it used to be. Why? Affordable energy. Because, of course, that lends itself to affordable food production and, uh, you know, housing. You name it. Every bit of it. And we have this ideologically driven government that's trying to push us away from these hydrocarbons. And as Michael was saying, there are alternatives, and we should look to those alternatives, certainly. But, you know, we can have both. And that, that's part of why I think it's hard to, to ration on that one. But when, when the, the Smith government in Alberta tapped the brakes on approvals for renewable energy projects. Now, again, the left has gone bananas, but guess what? The left is going to go bananas on Premier Smith no matter what she does ever. And that includes the legacy media, the same parasites who support things like stealing money from Facebook and, and other areas to try and subsidize their industry. They don't like her. They want her out. Speaking of subsidies. So look at legacy media. So they've put a pause. And see, they're talking about the end of the world. It's a moratorium. It's going to be an end. It's this and that. No, it's a six-month pause on, and it's not ones that are in process. It's not ones that are already built on pending and applications for wind and solar projects. Not necessarily forever. They're saying, let's just have another look at this. And I mean, as Michael said too, we've got to look at the impact. They are not zero impact projects. Uh, down by Vulcan, uh, south of there, you get towards the Little Bow. This is parts, you know, if I know we've got national viewers, but this is in Southern Alberta. There is a massive solar project in there, massive. It's the Traverse Solar Project. And it takes up 3,300 acres, yeah, 3,300 acres of land down there that was grazing and agricultural land. And that land had, again, endangered species on it. It had burrowing owls. It had uh, uh, antelope down there. And it had farmers in some areas of it. It's pretty dry down there, but there's some areas where they were uh, either running cattle or they were uh, trying cropland on dryland farming. It's gone now. 3,300 acres have been taken out of the mix. Now, that solar facility generates about as much power as one, there's a, a major one in the city of Calgary, a natural gas one that generates power for the city of Calgary. Now that natural gas facility takes up, well, I don't know, 10, maybe 20 acres. There's cost benefit. 
Okay, we've got to look at those things. I mean, maybe the solar one is still worth it, but it comes with a cost, an environmental cost, and of course, a monetary cost. And speaking of subsidies, we have a really hard time finding subsidies for the oil and gas energy uh, industry. That's why uh, Michael and I were you know, talking so long, trying to find exactly where they are. But you don't have to look hard to find the subsidies that go into wind and solar. They, these are, it's not just private industry building these. These are heavily subsidized companies going into these projects because most of them can't generate on their own. There was a large solar project out by Medicine Hat, the sunniest, driest part of Alberta. It went broke. It went broke after just a few years. It just couldn't come up with it. Now, technology is getting better. Solar is getting better. Maybe it'll get there. But... What we need also, though, is reliable energy. We need a grid that you can have even if the weather isn't cooperating. And solar and wind don't contribute when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. So we still need, and that's what Premier Smith was talking about, basically for every bit that we bring on stream that's solar and wind, it still has to be backed up or matched by something reliable, whether it's nuclear, natural gas, or even coal. I don't think she said that, though. So we got to look at these things. Alberta, the West, we don't have giant rivers we can dam like Quebec and Newfoundland had. We have to work with what we've got, and this energy is important. It's important every part of us. Meanwhile, again, we have a central Canadian government trying to shut it down. But they're happily taking all the taxes out of it. They're happily sucking the equalization out of the West and happily uh, screwing the West on transfer payments for pretty much everything. So... We've got quite something going on, and it's a PR battle. So reminding people, no, please, people, average Canadian people, you were not being ripped off by the oil and gas industry. In fact, it's one of the best things that ever could have happened to you. You were lucky. You were born in the period of human history when oil and gas were providing you all of this prosperity and comfort and extended lifespans and uh, modern medicine. So let's hope these battles keep up because uh, the thing is, again, with all of Gilbo's uh, talk, if, if the energy industry was so dependent on subsidies, well, they would have bailed out as soon as he said he was ending them, right? But the, they're just looking around, oh, okay, you're going to stop giving me money that you never gave me in the first place. Okay, I, I, I guess I'll be all right. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. All right, let's turn the page a little bit. Uh, sorry about some federal things. Uh, Perception of increased crime. we got this going on. Some numbers have been coming in. Uh, Pierre Polyev has certainly been pointing it out. Violent crime in Canada and crime in general in Canada everywhere is going up. In fact, frighteningly so. It is shooting through the roof. I don't think there's easy solutions for it. I mean, there never is. Most big things, there's no easy solution. But the Liberals have really taken on a, an outlook, not just with the immigration, for example, but with the crime. They deny that it's a problem. They say it's a perception problem. Canadians perceive crime is going up. No, they aren't perceiving it. They've got knives piercing them. They're being robbed. They're being molested. They're being abused by criminals. The statistics now back it up. Stats Canada says the crime is rising dramatically. And you're not going to start towards the solution, whatever it may be, until you at least first admit we got the bloody problem. But they aren't admitting that. And I mean, I see some recent stories. This is just today on the Western Standard. Again, i got to keep nagging you guys. WesternStandard.news, get on there, get your stuff. Uh, two in, in Edmonton alone. Arthur is always on top of that stuff up there. Uh, two violent sexual uh, offenders have been released among the public who are both considered high risks to reoffend. The police are warning us, basically. One of them, again, was released four years ago, and they warned us then, saying he's a high risk to reoffend. Guess what? He raped and hurt somebody. <gasps> who just saw that coming, right? You know what? He's going to be out in a few friggin' years again. And he'll do it again. They're 
are a core of incorrigible criminals out there, dangerous criminals. You know, I believe in three strikes laws. I really do. And you know, you see, the problem is when you get a government that takes a policy and screws it up dramatically, you can ruin a good policy because you implemented it wrong. I believe it was California that did that and they love screwing up policy down there. They brought in a three strikes law, but the problem is they let it encompass everything. So somebody who gets three convictions for shoplifting is suddenly getting a 20 year sentence. And then they overcrowded their prisons. They caused all sorts of problems. Is our justice system really too stupid to figure out the difference between a rapist and a shoplifter, a murderer and a car thief? You know, some of these violent crimes and when they're repeat and when you know you can't fix them, you know what? I don't care anymore. Warehouse them. Yeah, warehouse them. Put them away long, long term. And you know what? Once you do that, it's not that expensive anymore. Once you've accepted that. Once you've given a true life sentence, you're going to die of old age in prison. Okay. Then you don't have to worry about all those rehabilitation programs. You just got to keep them in jigsaw puzzles and some recreational activities and so on to do out their time in prison in an isolated area. Because you know what? We're paying for it anyway with these chronic criminals. You hear about them, 20, 30 convictions, or some of them if it's only five or six convictions, but of heinous, heinous crimes. Guess what? They're in remand for years at a time. They're in and out of our hospitals for years at our time, our police stations for years at a time. We're paying for all of that. They're in and out of the courts chronically. Don't try to tell me it's cheaper to release those chronic, violent, nasty people into the public, the innocent public, and then keep rearresting them don't try and tell me that's cheaper than just taking them and saying, you know what, you have raped a third person in your life. You're going to go away until you die of old age in prison. We've had it with you. We can't fix you. Your brain is broken. Sorry it happened, but goodbye. Likewise, armed robbers, people who assault people. Again, there's one more commonality you see with these. I'm not going to go into the whole side rant, but if anybody's interested, look up the Gladue principles, guys, because that is is the bottom line when you look at most of these offenders who keep getting released and keep getting light sentences for very, very serious crimes. Uh, Tracy, too, saying weirdo crime's gone up since uh, Trudeau's reign in mass immigration policy. Uh, yeah, you see, I, some of the crime is from, from new Canadians, but a whole lot actually, in fact, a disproportionately high, and that's a much bigger discussion, is coming from our Indigenous Canadians. If you look at the cities with the highest crime rates in Canada, violent crime rates, they're always the cities with the highest percentage of Indigenous people. Now, it's not saying Indigenous, don't misinterpret this. It's not saying that they're naturally criminals by any means. What it's saying, obviously, is that the system is not treating Indigenous Canadians well at all. They are not doing well, and we need to change how we're approaching our entire Indigenous policy. But as it is, they're the highest victims, and perpetrators of most crimes in Canada right now. And yes, they do disproportionately fill up the bulk of our prison spaces right now. Getting back to those Gladue principles I referenced earlier, that's a policy that's talking about how to keep uh, First Nations people out of our prisons because they've had different challenges and things in their backgrounds. Well, those policies have been in place for what, over 20 years now, and Indigenous people are making up still a higher percentage in prisons than they ever did. So let's just face it, that policy failed. It failed, it didn't work. And we got to be careful. Again, I'm not talking about targeting Indigenous people for long-term prison sentences. I'm just talking about, because there's non-Indigenous people who do some horrific crimes too. But we got to get realistic about where the problems are. And we got to stop making excuses. I don't care about the background of the offender. I really don't. I mean, I, it's tragic. I understand people who have been assaulted and harmed in their young life are much more likely to end up 
going off the rails when they're older. And it's tragic, it's wrong, it sucks. Let's try and prevent that as much as we can. But once it's done, once they're committing the crimes, once they're reoffending, once they're harming citizens, once they're putting citizens at risk, we have to quit worrying about what got them there and just worry about stopping them from continuing with what they've been doing. And meanwhile, releasing stabbers and uh, armed robbers and, and these things. And a lot of it's tied to the opioid addiction epidemic as well. That's a large part of it. But we, we, we talk about uh, stabbings and, and, and things. Look at the numbers. Look at the stories. Read them up. They're often people on the streets. They're often addicted. Or when you see all the shootings that are going on, and there's a lot of shootings. Those aren't the addicts because any addict who gets a hold of a gun is going to sell that thing as fast as they can to get more crap. But uh, dealers. Of course. I mean, they've got a big lucrative market of addicts out there that they need to keep selling to and feeding and funding. So they're shooting each other up in, in gang wars. And it gets into a large, complicated discussion um, going on about how we deal with uh, drug policy and things such as that. <sighs> it's messy. But getting back to where I started that whole rant is admitting that crime is going up. And again, it's similar to what I was talking about with the immigration thing. It's not a matter of opinion. It's math. The crimes are growing up. People don't have a perception of being unsafe when they go into urban cities in Canada right now. They are unsafe when they go into those places right now. It is dangerous to go to those places right now. There are people stabbing and robbing people in those places right now. And there's a few things we can do about it. No easy things, but there's a few. Start by admitting the crime's going up and start giving real sentences to those real repeat offenders. All right, guys, that's kind of used up my time today. So I appreciate you all coming to join. I'm going to remind you all one more time, take out a membership. Go directly to westernstandard.news. Take out the email subscription. That's how you can keep up with things as social media giants start uh, cutting us off and being able to share links up there thanks to the Trudeau government's policies. So thank you for tuning in today, guys, and thank you to the uh, subscribers who have already been supporting us. There'll be lots more to discuss next week at this time, and I'm looking forward to seeing you all then. Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley is down $3 at $3.85. Feed wheat is also down $3 at $3.87, and corn is steady at $3.86 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, September Minneapolis futures are lower 7.5 cents at 8.23 per bushel, with local hard red spring bid for August movement at 10.20 per bushel. Looking at canola, November futures are down $6.40 at 7.84.50 per ton, with delivered values for August-September movement at 17.44 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at 32 cents per pound, and yellow peas are at 10.70 per bushel. And in the livestock markets, October live cattle at at 70 cents at 180.40 per hundred weight. For more information on pricing or picked up options, give me a call. I'm Matt Buscom at Marketplace Commodities. Accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.